Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Before we get started, I'd like to ask our listeners when they're done today to consider giving the show a five-star rating on their podcast app and maybe even writing us a brief review. It's an unfortunate reality of our podcast ecosystem that getting good ratings and getting reviews helps us to build our audience, which lets us continue to attract the great guests that we have on the show. So if you got a chance, a rating and maybe even a review would be much appreciated. Thanks. Today's guest is Douglas Rushkoff. Douglas is the host of the Team Human podcast and author of the book, Team Human, as well as a dozen other best-selling books on media, technology, and culture, including one of my real favorites titled Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. While I was reading it, my wife and I were actually spending a month in San Francisco and seeing the minimally labeled Google buses sneaking all over the Marina District where we were staying. Uh, it was quite a bit of a yikes. Very interesting. Douglas is also professor of media theory and digital economics at CUNY Queens, and he's a returning guest. I looked it up. He was on my episode number six, when I frankly didn't really know what I was doing, but it was nonetheless a quite interesting episode titled Memetics money and team human welcome douglas well good to be with you yeah we uh, i love your work i love what you do i certainly consider you on the you know we're on the same team human in some sense <laughs> totally. right? i know just finding we're all finding the others you know as timothy leary told us <laughs> in yep. the in 68 we are we are both continuing that that pursuit Absolutely. And that's the first thing, finding the others, right, mm -hmm. in this crazy world we live in. So today we're going to have a talk that is going to be loosely based on the course Douglas teaches, and he teaches it with a colleague, Jeff Jarvis, called Designing the Internet. And it's going to give us a chance to explore where the internet came from, where it is, where it might go, and what we might be able to do to influence it towards a better future. Excellent. Yeah, so first I'm going to quote something from the, the front material of the course. Douglas was very generous in sharing his syllabus with me, and I actually read some of the articles that were pointed to and, and such, including the book that's in progress. I wish it wasn't so covered with watermarks from the publisher, but hey, that's a story for another day. Yeah. <laughs> I look forward to reading the book when it comes out. So here's how they describe their course. Jarvis, his co-teacher, is a defender of internet freedoms, Rushkoff, a critic of the net's current proprietors. But we align on the goals for the internet in this course to alter the discussion of the net from dystopian despair to productive engagement, to propose that the net is not finished, and to suggest to students that you consider the possibility that you have the time and ability to redirect the net to better ends and to empower yourself and others. Yeah, I like it. Uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's so so much better than the despair that we hear so much. Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing, it's funny. I mean, Jeff calls it designing the internet. I call it redesigning the internet, you know, which is something that should be going on all the time anyway. You know, that's the beauty of the internet. It's, it's we should see it more like the, the U.S. Constitution than something that's set in stone. It's, it's 
up for discussion. It's up for our programming. And what I was thinking about, funny, as as you were talking, I was thinking about my first experiences of computing in the internet. And the very first time I was on a, um, you know, on a terminal, well, originally on a teletype terminal where I saved everything on paper tape. But then when I was in college, I was in the computer lab and the woman who was the the technologist there, when I was finished, she said, oh, now do you want to save your file as a read-only file or a read-write file? And I'm like, read-write, what's that? And when she explained to me that, well, you could save it as a file that only you can, you know, that people could read or a file that people could read or change themselves. And I was like, wow, I'm going to save it like that and see what people do to it. But then when I went out into the world, I remember walking out of the computer lab at Princeton University thinking, what else about this world is read-write that no one ever told me? You know, why is money read-only? Why is television read-only? How could I turn, and, and religion, Judaism, and I'm looking at these things saying, well, Judaism was meant as a read-write religion. It, it was has Talmud with hypertext all around it, but money? Why don't they let me write my own money? Why is that counterfeit? Why is that illegal? You know, why are we, and so my whole career, really, all those books, you know, that I wrote after that were always about what is up for discussion? What are we allowed to change? How do we take the read-write sensibility of the internet and apply it to all of these other social and cultural systems? But now I'm at the point, and that's why it's funny to come full circle, I'm saying, well, let's apply the read-write open source sensibility to technology itself, because they seem to have forgotten <laughs> that... That, that they don't have to just do this one way. You know, that the, the way to make a, a piece of technology is not to think up something, then go to Goldman Sachs, get a bunch of money and pivot towards the most extractive surveillance technology you can make. But you have a, a wide assortment of possibilities. And a lot of that still exists in our world. And people you know, are, are tending to forget that, that you can still, I mean, this in some sense, this is the golden age, right? For $20 a month, you can have yourself a pretty spiffy Squarespace site and you know, be almost as glitzy as the New York Times if you're so inclined. Right. Right, for sure. Or you can you can go on on Code Academy and learn to code in a year, or 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 get a drag and drop interface and make your own games, make your own social networks, make your own blockchains. I mean, the ability to do really new, different, interesting things—it's never been easier to do that. And the paucity, I feel, and that's why we're teaching a course. It seems more that there's a paucity of imagination than uh, <laughs> than than access. Well, of course, of course it's, the entry is easy today, right? Yeah. For instance, I wrote a mobile game recently and published it. Turned out hmm. not to even be that hard. And it's a good one. It's getting great reviews, et cetera. Oh. Networkwars.com, for those of you interested. But here's the interesting thing. Just like the person that puts up your Squarespace, beautifully written, elegant journalese, or my new game, getting attention is really hard. And as we'll talk about in a little bit, the big platforms have made an art and science of capturing our attention and turning that into money. And so right. you know, essentially the what comes next in the internet is how do we reclaim control of our attention? It seems like to me. Because the doing the doing is easy. I mean, notice the great journalists that are leaving, you know, mainstream media and going to Substack, for instance. Yeah. You know, and sometimes I look at that and go, that's great because they can just go and take their audience with them and build their own thing. And then I think 
it's kind of sad also. You know, I mean, I like working with an editor. I think they make me better. I like being in a magazine where I don't know whether they're coming for me or somewhere else. I have the wiggle room to write a piece that maybe didn't get that attention, but because they're buying the whole magazine, no one will ever know, you know? <laughs> so you could hide kind of behind that. And and I, I feel a little bit, you know, like, all right, so some editor cut out some paragraph that I really wanted in my piece. So now I'm going to take my ball and go home and go to Substack and I'm not going to work for them anymore. And sometimes the editor does make your piece better. Sometimes when they say that paragraph really is too strident or unfounded or it's going to push some buttons. I mean, yeah, if you're just out of fear of offending somebody, then maybe not. But a lot of times I feel like there's, there's one or two more levels of negotiation that someone could go through before pulling up stakes and, and running to Substack. But I got to say, the stuff on Substack is amazing. The good stuff on Substack is really amazing. I think I now subscribe to like 15 different Substacks. Right. But, and it's up to us to find them too, though. Yeah. I mean, it's a different burden, but yeah. 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 And it requires a different set of skills, skills that a lot of people don't have. Hey, for you uh, young entrepreneurs out there, there's a great opportunity. Call it the rut digest or something, which is to negotiate deals with the people you like to publish an occasional story, perhaps the ones you think are the best in your digest, right? Which will then drive traffic to them and you'll get subscribers for your digest. There's a definite need for that. I was yeah. subscribed to somebody exactly. who- who was good at curation, had lots of time to spend reading all the substacks and to, you know, pull together the best of and sell that as a subscription. I think there's there's an opportunity. Yeah. And I think the other opportunity, the way I look at it as a, as a writer would be for five or 10 writers to hire an editor who, you know, and they, they could do a, a joint subscription, you know, so everyone subscribes, you get everybody in that posse and now you've got service. So you flip the model. So instead of you working for the editor, the editor and layout people are working for a collective of writers. Yeah. And I think that's you know sort of starting to happen. Glenn Greenwald seems to be bringing other people in and hiring editors and, you know, podcast people, et cetera. And he's kind of reversing the polarity, though yeah. I don't know if he's taking a cooperative business model, which I think would be great. Yeah. That would, that would be really good. Well, let's hop back into your course here and use that as an outline to sort of figure out how we got to where we got to. In fact, let's start at the beginning with Gutenberg. Yeah. It's interesting. We changed. I don't know if the the syllabus I gave you, I think, went in, in historical order. Yeah, I did, we, not. I, I re- oh, did not. I re- Okay, good. I refactored it into right. historical order. Yeah, because we started it in historical order. Then we were like, no, no, you know. Because these kids, let's just start with where the internet, we started where it is, and then we go back later. But yeah, yeah, let's go back to Gutenberg. The, the funny thing is, you know, Jeff loves, Jeff Jarvis loves Gutenberg as as the great example of, you know, this new technology came and flipped everything on its head. And it's a great way, if you look historically at what the printing press did to European culture and religion and earnings and everything and distribution and ideas and individuality, then it helps you see, oh, the internet also interrupted society in progress <laughs> with a whole lot of new things. But I'm even lately with the invention of the metaverse or whatever it is we want to call it, I've been going all the way back to the invention of language, thinking about what was it like? You know, what would it have been like if you were from one, you know, tribe of cave people and you walk around and you see this other tribe where there's a guy making mouth noises and other people then doing stuff in a coordinated fashion. It's like 
that's virtual reality, right? <laughs> he created this weird symbol system of bleh, bleh, stuff that then they go do stuff. It means something to them. We have to say that we think there's some mastodons over in the next valley. It allows you to draw the picture in your head of the valley where you'd been before and mastodons, which you'd seen before, though never in that valley. So you've actually created a virtual reality through language. Right. Right. And then that affects what you do and whether you go over there to hunt them or whether you stay away because you don't want to get trampled by them. It, it's, um, it was big. you know. And then when I think about, well, the stuff that couldn't be represented in language, the stuff that couldn't. Where did that go? You know, does that recede then? Then we can we become very subject object oriented. Anything that we can name exists and the stuff we can't name kind of fades. Cause then when I think about in the next net, you know, if we do build some AR, VR version of our world, the stuff that we don't code and put there, where does that go? Or the stuff that's in between one quantized place and the next, you know, the, the in-between stuff is where I always get, uh, I always get concerned. But, you know, Gutenberg and the printing press is a big one for, especially for McLuhan, because he was, he was concerned as we move from sort of personal written manuscripts and scrolls and things to the mechanized printing press that everything becomes the same. It all becomes very, um, very uniform and will end up in a kind of a uniform mechanized society where reading is less personal. And, you know, he, he was, well, he was all concerned about the reformation that came, you know, Protestantism. That, exactly. That, Protestantism in the 30 years war, you can trace fairly yeah. directly to Gutenberg. Mm -hmm. Almost certainly would not have happened without the ability to mass produce Bibles in various vernacular languages. Right. Right. So once you know that and you say, oh, so these things really they matter. <laughs> they're, not, they're not just, it's not just, oh, we're watching Netflix on a computer instead of a TV. <laughs> it's a little bigger than that. Exactly. Right. And so, you know, it's really important. And of course, the ideas that manifest today as the nets are actually not all that new. People were having these ideas way back yonder in their course materials, or at least one of the essays that were in it. There was a quote from Vannevar Bush, I think back in the late 40s. Consider a future device in which an individual stores all his books, records, and communications, and which is mechanized so that it may be consulted with exceeding speed and flexibility is an enlarged, intimate supplement to his memory. Mm. Yeah, Vandiver Bush, very interesting guy. He was actually the little-known head of R&D for the United States government during World War II and, yep. and helped vet some of the first computers. Uh, a tough dude, by yep. all accounts. And he wrote this essay, you know, in the Atlantic, and it was basically an open letter to Eisenhower. You know, Eisenhower was getting all worried about the military industrial complex that was going to come. And Vannevar Bush was basically writing an essay that was a um, was kind of a swords to plowshares argument, saying we could take these weapons of war, these computers that we were working on, we don't put them away now, let's apply them to different to different tasks. So you know, he was saying, you know, that a, a, a businessman can now have a desk of some kind. And in the desk are these files, but they're digital files. And, and it was really, it was a, he was envisioning the, the computer, the personal computer before anyone even really thought about it technologically. But then there was also something really interesting. He said in that same article, he said, because the computer will memorize everything, it'll have full memory. It will give us the liberty to forget. And it was such a, a and I'm thinking about People who had lived through, I and mean, he was part of the Manhattan Project, 
and they lived through the, the, the Nazi exterminations, that, that the idea that this computing will let us, it'll relieve us of the nightmare that we just lived through. You know, we, we don't have to worry. We'll remember. It'll be down there, you know, but we could be free of the memories too. It's an interesting. It's an interesting thought, and of course, you know, memory is a big part of the nets. And of course, the ne- and next kind of founding father of early thinking was Ted Nelson. Mm. Uh, and I look, I looked him up as prep while well, I was doing my prep for this. He's still alive. Who would have yeah. thunk, right? And he's not as old as you would have think because you know he started Xanadu Project Xanadu in 1960. So I said the guy must be a hundred. Well, I look back, he was 23 when he started Project Xanadu, and you know Xanadu in some sense was kind of a a hyper-rich version of the World Wide Web in some sense. Mm-hmm. It was. And it was, I mean, if you look at the, the look at the book, you know, it was computer lib dream machines. You look at it and it's such a like a 1960s hippie book with all these little drawings and charts and things. It's like the medium is the massage. You know, it's a very hip, crazy ass uh, hippie thing. And he is envisioning a I mean, this is why I was, I was the one who pushed this in there. You know, the hippie, I'm the, the hippie side of the equation in this team taught class. He's the more, you know, a little bit more Wall Street, I'm a little bit more uh, Woodstock, I guess. But to show that there was this wide-eyed, optimistic 1960s dream, the thing that Stuart Brand and Howard Rheingold and the Whole Earth Catalog and Esalen Institute and Timothy Leary and John Lilly, that whole crowd was dreaming that computers would allow us to somehow engage in a in a collective imaginary that we would you know eventually move to the unimind or you know some the, the next stage of gaia would be humanity hooking linking itself up through this giant web of ideas and the other interesting thing about ted nelson is he was already imagining what we would now call two-way linking it wasn't that everything just linked to something it linked back so you knew who was pinging at you you know you were it was a sort of a live link yeah, and I, I use room research for quite a bit of my work, and it has built-in bidirectional link, which were actually very, very clever. And the way they've implemented it is so simple. I'm surprised that it hasn't become more generally used. Well worth looking at. I know they wanted to do it in the original web design, but they couldn't figure it out. And then they were like, okay, let's not let this stop the whole project. We're going to launch the web anyway. But it's like, now we've got it. But it's, it's and, and in theory, it's this sort of blockchain-y world has something closer to uh, to two-way linking as well. Yeah, it was interesting. Ted was still, Ted Nelson was still a, definitely a live influence when I first got involved in the work around these networks. I went to work as a young guy at a company called The Source, which was the... Ah. The very first consumer online service. We, you know, amazingly, most of the things we got on the web today, we had 1980 at 300 baud text mode only $10 an hour. You know, we had email, we had chat, we had bulletin board, we had news, stock prices, et cetera. And one of our executives actually brought Ted by and he talked to us. And, oh, wow. And we thought that. Wow, he's, he's beyond our current capacity to execute on, because in those days, communications were slow, the computers were expensive, text was text, etc. But man, uh, he was quite an inspiration. And then later at the well, say in the 1990 epoch, again, Xanadu was still a live idea when the internet existed, but not yet the a World Wide Web. Right. And it's interesting, though, because it's it's was this other way of thinking about things that really rose in the 60s and early 70s. I remember there was a guy, um, Alan Capro, 
Did you ever hear him? Don't know him. He was an artist theater maker who got really tired with the idea that theater is this thing that has a script with actors on a stage and an audience in these chairs. And he invented the happening, right? Uh So that the happening was very cyber really. The happening was you would have a set of rules and you would hand them out to people like in a field and then they would execute on those rules and you would get some emergent phenomenon. Like, you know, the rule might be say hello to the person on your left, share a recent memory, hear one of their memories, and then share it with another person. And, you know, and you would have these things happen or you'd make a building with bodies or whatever. And it was really the idea that, that we could organize in a different way. Again, that sort of read-write, hypertextual, person-to-person, emergent reality rather than this prescribed by the book rules, you know, um, top-down organization of everything. And and then you talk about, or you have in your syllabus, a fair bit of that almost do-it-yourself pre-internet, you know, the uh, Usenet, for instance, right? Yeah. And, the, and the BBS world. I actually launched a company on BBS technology in 1990 and 91, right? And it actually worked, but it, it was completely anarchic. There was nobody in charge. It was great stuff. It was great stuff, though, and it worked, is the thing. It worked. So, you know, and I guess, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a anarcho-syndicate. To, you know, at my core in the end, you know, which is very, very game B, if you think exactly. about it. Game you know. B is actually anarcho-syndicalism plus plus, right? Right. Exactly. On the plus, nets. On the nets, right? On the net or with the net, really. Yeah, with the I, net. But uh, I, I always, I, I love telling the stories of the early net to kids today because I'll show them how something like FidoNet worked, which is how I got introduced to networking. And FidoNet was just Whichever kid had the best computer was the node, and the other kids would use their computers and basic, very bare basic modems where you actually put the handset of the phone in the modem to get the sound. You would dial into his computer and, and leave your messages for other people or play a game and then leave. Fidonet was all these hobbyists' computers just calling each other in the middle of the night, sending information. You would send a piece of email, and it could take four or five days <laughs> to get to the kid that you're trying to reach <laughs> because everyone's just passing information. But it was, it was imagine like a mesh network, but of asynchronous machines just dialing into each other when their mom's not on the phone. Exactly, exactly. FidoNet, I remember it. And then Usenet, which is slightly, you know, a, a slightly more organized version of that, but still relatively anarchic. You could start a new branch wherever you wanted. My old childhood friend Brian Reed for a long time kept I tried to keep a map of Usenet and it just kept uh. getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And again, it was file transfers. In fact, the very first full internet feed I got in 1990 or 91, my use case for it was actually to be able to pull down the whole Usenet in something close to real time. Basically, a 9600 baud dial-up connection into PSINet. I think I was customer number 40 for PSINet. Allowed me to download the full Usenet and do all kinds of analysis and packaging and what have you. And uh, that was quite an interesting early world. It was. It was really the equivalent for people who are old enough to remember AOL. It was basically like the bulletin boards on AOL, except not on anything. And not regulated (laughs) at all. (laughs) No, because there was all these alt.binaries, which were 
pictures. Dirty pictures. <laughs> and, and there was this moment, I remember, because most of Usenet was, you know, people like us, just computer user type people who were interested in the tech. And there were some, you know, people who who trafficked in some, you know, porn imagery. But then there was a moment in the 90s when AOL plugged itself finally into the Usenet when they, rather than just being the walled garden of AOL, AOL subscribers were going to get access to the real internet. And all of a sudden, every Usenet conversation, whatever it was about, had people asking, how do I download GIFs? How do I assemble a GIF? You know, because to get a single porn picture, you would have to download like eight different GIFs and assemble them into one thing because we didn't have, there was no room. And everybody's asking, and it was just like, that was the problem with what we called newbies is they just wanted to be told how they could get their porn. <laughs> and, and once people figured out how to make that uh, easy, you know, in the early mid nineties, 50% of the traffic on the internet was porn probably. Right. And today right. it's probably 10 or 15. Right. Uh, now and, it's Netflix. Yeah. yeah. Now it's Netflix, 25%. Did you know that Usenet still exists? Yes. I poked, and IRC still exists, Internet Relay Track. Yeah, and, and here's a really interesting thing. Google Groups is actually implemented on Usenet. I didn't know that. Or at least it was. They may have right. changed it around. But Google bought Clarinet, Templeton's company, which was an attempt to put a easier-to-use wrapper around Usenet, mm. and it kind of disappeared as a standalone product. But it reemerged, at least initially, as Google Groups implemented using Usenet. Amazing. I don't know if it's still the case. And I actually, I still um, I still use some Google groups and old mailing yep. list technology for various things. So it's a good common denominator. And that's the thing. I mean, part of the reason why I like talking about these some of these old technologies is that it becomes really hard to distinguish new technologies from these ones. I sometimes wonder, you know, all the video and streaming stuff that we use, even what we're using now, we had CUC Me. It was Cornell's video chat I mean, yeah, it was, you know, one frame every 16 seconds or whatever, but it was it was video streaming. So now we have faster, better color, better resolution, you know, better feeds and speeds. But the basic technologies that we're using, they were all around and they were all developed nonprofit. They were all developed as shareware at universities, not for anybody's money. It really wasn't until, you know, uh, Mark Andreessen took Mosaic to Netscape and went public the same day that Jerry Garcia died, mind you, that he took Netscape public that all of a sudden these technologies were like, oh, we could we could make a buck off these things too. Yeah, I remember that very clearly, actually. And uh, that is the last little bit of the prehistory. You talk about the wired libertarians, right? And again, as someone who was on the well in the early 90s, and I should say, full disclosure, I am currently one of the well 11 who are the users who own the well. We essentially, oh, wow. We bought it to rescue it from Salon. From Salon. Thank you. Yes. Salon was going to shut it down, right? And 11 of us got together, bought it, and it's nominally a for-profit, but I'm not waiting for my dividends, right? We just <laughs> wanted to preserve the community. And so, by the way, anyone who wants to check out the well, it still exists, well.com. But it was the hotbed for net libertarianism and probably reached its high watermark with John Perry Barlow's famous Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. Yes. Oh, my gosh. You know, and we all, I mean, I was I was a kid then, and I just knew John Barlow as a lyricist for The Grateful Dead, and he's talking about, you know, liberation on the net. And it was like, you know, uh, uh, you know, nation states of the world, you know, beware, we are coming. <laughs> you are obsolete. We don't need you. We are free. And, and what we didn't realize 
I didn't know what libertarianism even was at the time. You know, what we didn't realize was that following him and getting rid of government online just created free reign for corporations. It's it's a bit like, you know, fungus and bacteria in the body. You know, if you take too many antibiotics and get rid of too much bacteria, your fungus ends up, you know, growing. So like by getting rid of government completely, we created this this kind of free zone for for libertarianism without really realizing what would happen. But yeah, that's the wired was what happened. Yeah. And I, and I would, you know, I'll confess to being guilty, right? At both the source, we were convinced we were doing the work of the good for citizenry, right? Yeah. And certainly in the early well, we certainly thought that this net libertarianism, keep government off our backs, uh, utterly unregulated, etc., has to lead to good stuff. Well, it seemed like it would. It did. And and you got to remember people also who, who might be angry at us for having thought that way. What government had done with the internet to that point, other than building it originally, they had just done Operation Sun Devil, where they arrested like teenage hacker kids for wandering into shopping malls and stuff. They arrested Steve Jackson, who had a fantasy role-playing game company in Boston. Illuminati, yeah, Yeah, I remember that because he had a game called Illuminati that they thought was the Illuminati, (laughs) right? So they arrest him to take all his computers. I mean, it was was off, and, you know, Tipper Gore, and they had just done the, the, you know, Computer Decency Act and whatever, and the, the... uh, they were uh, worried about uh, parental advisories on remember Tipper Gore was all upset about the language of rap music and the mm-hmm. violence of video games. So and they had to put little seals on things uh-huh. and all that stuff. Right? So it felt like government was just trying to paint the internet as this place for, you know, drugs and sex and violence. And um, they didn't, they didn't understand what we were doing. So you know, between all that, we really did want them to go away. Yeah, and uh, and they did basically, yeah. right? Uh, <laughs> I think what the, the failure of imagination I would suggest that a lot of us had was because remember back in the days of the source and CompuServe and AOL and the well, big distinguishing factor is you had to pay, right? It cost money to mm. be on these services, and they had their own constitutions. You know, some of them would allow cussing, some of them wouldn't. Right. The source, owned by the Reader's Digest, absolutely would not allow any cussing, right? And to this day, uh, Facebook famously will not allow nipples. Uh, I one time got one of my posts really? canceled by Facebook. It was a, uh, an article about intentional communities, and the cover art for the the article, which was pulled up by Facebook, had a, a hippie family sitting at a yurt. And uh, one of the hippie kids was like maybe four years old of indeterminate sex, topless. And so their algorithm determined this could be a topless four-year-old girl. Right. Therefore, it must be censored. Still active to this day on Facebook, believe it or not. But anyway, what we didn't <laughs> anticipate was the phase change that occurred in the early double aughts when the cost of the nets and the cost of computing and the quality of the tools got good enough that you could build services that could fully fund themselves and be very profitable on advertising alone. Right. I believe that's what we somehow failed to see. Because we, I mean, I know when I was building these companies in the 80s and 90s, it was real expensive. I mean, this stuff was not cheap. It was hard to do. You're writing your own stuff. You might remember writing low-level communications drivers for a Fax 750 for mm-hmm. one of my companies, right? Now you just pull all the shit down, throw the uh, code together, and it sort of works some of the time. Yeah. Although I do remember in, in like 1996, I think it was, when they came out with a book called One-to-One Marketing, 
that's when I got concerned. Well, actually, I got concerned when Wired Magazine came and said, this is a tsunami and you better get on the board or you're going to get run over and we're in a long boot. And then Chris Anderson, you know, editor of Wired, published that damn book free, right? Yeah. But of course, yeah. you know, it was unstoppable. Once, and he, that was his point of his book, once it's possible to make a product for free, you're forced to do so. This is a classic, what we call in game D land, a multipolar trap race to the bottom. Right, because uh, if you're in a in a market, let's let's say forums, right, and you you're like the well, basically forums, twelve dollars a month, ten dollars a month, whatever it is, still is by the way, they still charge, and you have to compete with free, right, like Facebook. How can you do that for most people? You can't, and so now everything is free because we're caught in this multipolar trap where if anybody moves to free, everybody has to move to free, essentially. Right. And once you get the free, then what happens? As they famously say, if you're not paying for the product, you're not the customer, you are the product. Yeah, that's where you end up. And that became the business model for all of these companies. But fairly late in the day. I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't really viable till the early double aughts, 2002, 2003, something right. like that. But it's just exploded since then. And that gets us to the next big chunk in your course, the economics and of the attention-based media and net economy. I mean, that's really where we are today. That's the world of today. You know, you, you guys reference Zuboff's very good book. People haven't read it, should read it. The Secrets of Surveillance Capitalism as a, a really good example. And the other one I'd call out that's definitely worth a watch if you haven't seen it is The Social Dilemma. My friend Tristan Harris and some other folks put together. In fact, a lot of the work you've done over the years, I think they essentially repurposed in that film. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I would have loved to nod, but um, I'm glad it's out there, right? You can't own memes. Uh, that's the one thing that that's that's uh, the consolation. As long as the meme spreads, I'm happy. They're my children. Let them let them grow. But I mean, for me, this again, this began in '95, '96 when Wired magazine did that cover story about the attention economy. They announced that, well, the real estate online is infinite, but what's finite are what they called eyeball hours. That was the metric that was used, the amount of hours that someone's eyeballs were on the screen. And they said the new mandate for any online company is to create sticky websites, they called them, right? Sticky so that your, your eyeballs get glued to the page. And that was when for me, that was when the dynamic of the net shifted from these technologies being things people use to find exploits out there in the world to technologies that work on people to find exploits in them. You know, and that's when all this stuff came and 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 to be fair, people like Shoshana Zuboff at Harvard Business School were perfectly happy applying all of the tools of behavioral finance and psychology to users and workers and tailor management and all until she saw by now, by 2010, oh, this is where this is where that goes. You know, when you automate the feedback loop between technologies and people and the algorithms learn how to exploit you without even us watching what they're doing, um, you get some really uh, perverse effects. Yeah. I think, you know, the thing people have to keep in mind, there are now computers more powerful than those that were driving Deep Blue, the IBM mainframe that beat Kasparov. Mm -hmm. Those things are now turned at you to <laughs> uh, essentially track every behavior you make. And, you know, people don't realize this. Facebook even knows what part of the screen your mouse is over, so-called heat maps, right? And everything is tuned to basically turn your behavior back on you to turn you into the product. 
And, and, and as you've, you have talked about before, and again, Social Dilemma, they highlighted the fact that they're not only trying to sell you ads, but they're also trying to condition you to be more advertiserable, a more rich advertiserable target. Right. I mean, and that's what my Team Human book is about largely, is this ethos that wants to kind of shave anomalous behavior off people. You know, so if they're, they want their, their algorithm's success rate to go up by any means necessary. So if they know with 80% accuracy that you're going to go on a diet next week, they're going to start putting stuff about diet. Are you fat or something wrong with you in your newsfeed? But they're not doing it just to sell the ads of a particular sponsor. They're trying to get their 80% accuracy up to 90 or 95%. And that's by attacking the 20% who were not going to go on a diet and get them to perform uh, in accordance with their statistical profile. So what's happened is we're now using technology to auto-tune human behavior to fit on the quantized lines. And that's, you know, my issue with the digital environment as we go into it is that we're trying to conform people to those segmentations rather than uh, uh, foster the anomalous behavior, the innovation and the weirdness that we're going to need, you know, to solve great problems. That that 20% of people, those are the people that invented the net. That 20% of people are the weirdos like us who figure stuff out in new and strange ways. Don't auto-tune us to be like everybody else. Exactly. And the, and the other thing that I'd love to get your thoughts on, something I have noticed, and I actually did a accidental found experiment to prove that it's true, is that things like Facebook and Twitter seem to be turning us from thinkers into reactors, into basically making us much more impulsive. For instance, I recently put a quote up on a, a statement up on Twitter where I said that sharing content is a moral question. And long, lots of discussion about it. And uh, people said, yes, it should be. But for most people embedded in the nets today, they're not thinking about when they choose to share a piece of content. They literally are just triggered in some Kahneman system one kind of way to share. And I then responded after about 50 comments along this line. I said, well, what would happen if we put a mandatory pop-up box that said every time you share any uh, content on, you know, a Twitter or Facebook-like platform, you have to answer yes to the question, is sharing this content going to help make the world a better place for your children and grandchildren? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Just a moment of intervention, a moment of thought. That's Marxist, for God's sake. Exactly. (laughs) Socialist. Um, You're going to slow down the engines of capitalism, getting everybody thinking that just even if they just click yes, that extra half second is going to cost Facebook 17% of its annual profit. But what do you think it. about the idea that these uh, that, that these algorithms are not only you know wanting us to go on diets, even if we're not intended to, though I probably should, uh, <laughs> but they're also just making us much more triggered and reactive to everything. I agree. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about the difference between like television advertising and this sort of web conditioning, and I feel like. Back in the, I mean, I of course like television because I was raised in the television era. So that's, I guess, where I'm comfortable. But, you know, the people who were trying to convince us of things with TV, they were like Freudians. You know, Bernays' uncle or whatever was, was Sigmund Freud. And they're using, oh, we can look at the mother's need to nurture people and have her put an egg in Betty Crock. So they were, it was a, a, 
a very Freudian uh, or use a doctor to tell you that cigarettes are good. So you do regression and transference. A very now it's like Skinner. Right now, now it's a Skinner box, pure behavioral Pavlov, red light, make them click, go. So you're right. It's moving from responses, even if they're psychologically motivated, paternal, Manipulative, but you know, right. now they're just like, I like that. I love that. Going from Freud to Skinner, that, <laughs> that, that, that actually clarifies uh, this thinking for me, what, what has happened here. And I actually, and here's this, the, the found experiment was that the Game B community had its online home on Facebook for a long time. And uh, there were fairly frequent flame wars and little battles over nothing. And, you know, those of us who've been online forever know that this happens a lot. But we got into a Facebook tried to cancel us by accident, probably. But I think they mistuned their anti-QAnon algorithm and instead whacked all the admins for the uh, Game B group. And, you know, Game B, we may be eccentric, but we're not dangerous, right? (laughs) Uh, At least not in the short run. (laughs) Ha ha. But we got back online 12 hours later because we were able to call in some big guns, including Joe Rogan, to, you know, argue our corner. Oh, that helped? That oh. certainly helped. Got six, <laughs> got six million reads on a tweet that uh, Joe Rogan uh, retweeted. And uh, we also had people who knew people in Facebook and they looked into it and said, yes, even though we were giving death penalty kills, you know, these weren't suspensions. These, your account has been killed. No, not reversible, not appealable. We did get brought back to life after 12 hours. Yeah. But but uh, anyway, we we're so mad about this and realized how vulnerable we were that we built a new Game B network privately on a different technology, uh, uses a technology called Mighty Networks. Mm. And those are interested, go to game-b.org. We now have a community, several thousand people. And here's the interesting thing, not a single flame war, not a single fight. And I've thought about this, and what I realize is that Mighty Networks, whether by accident or by design, has built a cooler interface. It doesn't try to suck you into maximize engagement. Mm. It makes it a little harder to find things. So I would say the total level of engagement is lower. But what it has done is, is it somehow dampened this reflexivity. And it's that reflexivity that I believe was the cause yeah. of these unnecessary yelling matches between people. Yeah. And a barrier to entry is not a bad thing. You know, if you've got to walk through the snow to get to the seminar room to have the discussion with these people, you're not going to trash it as easily. You know, you're going to appreciate that we all made it to this room and we're here. You know, so with the well, back in the day on the well, when you dialed up, you know, you're, you're dialing it to something, you're paying precious minutes. I mean, I used, I forgot what it was called, um, where you uh, download everything and go, there was a- Sweeper. Sweeper, yeah. <laughs> Guess who wrote Sweeper? Who wrote Sweeper? I did. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I lived on, I, you saved my life. You saved my phone. Because people don't know, back then you had to pay every minute you were yep. on the phone cost money, you know, especially if it wasn't local. Yeah, I wrote Sweeper to save the well because it was getting so expensive, especially as there was so much content on there. Yeah. I wrote it and gave it away as a free gift to the community. People yeah. didn't believe that I made it free, right? It's said, I'll pay $100 for this thing. <laughs> I said, nope, it's my gift to the community. Yeah, but that's why people wrote software in the original community. But yeah, I use that because then I could dial in, download all the conversations in progress that I was a part of and sit offline. And the other thing that was great about that is that you're not rushed when you Compose your response. I could spend an hour crafting a single paragraph. The beauty of the of the well, and I really haven't experienced it since, was the well 
it anchored the internet for me as a place where I sounded smarter than I do in real life. I mean, imagine that the well was a, the, the internet was a place where we were smarter and we were embarrassed, uh, scared to meet each other in real life because we didn't think we could actually sound that intelligent. I mean, it was, it's so the opposite today, you know, where everyone online just sounds like an idiot and you meet them and you go, well, why do you sound like such an idiot on Twitter? A friend of mine who's a fairly well-known uh, uh, Twitter celebrity, you know, his Twitter persona is like a complete idiot asshole, right? Uh, yet in real life, he's a smart, calm, intellectual kind of dude. And I go, you know, why do you play that character on Twitter? Well, because it gets lots and lots of followers. That's yeah. why, right? Right. But and what what you say, though, that that the Mighty Net, it's tuned cooler. Yeah, it's tuned cooler. That's the words I've come up with. Right. For then Facebook is tuned so hot. That's... In theory, what this redesigning the internet course is about, that that it's up to each generation of internet users to say, well, how is the internet tuned? Recognizing that it's tuned. How is this platform tuned? Is it tuned? Is it optimized for for good? Is it, I mean, for lack of a better word, is it optimized for intelligent conversation? Is it optimized for coming up with solutions to problems? Or is it optimized for extraction of data? Is it optimized for sensationalism? Is it optimized for stickiness? And deciding it, it's up to us what we optimize for, you know, and to re-seize, to reclaim that power. Yeah, uh, let's skip temporarily the section I was going to next, which was regulation, and go to your section on human-centered design. Because I'm going to come back to regulation and say, you know, how do we get to human-centered design when there are no economic incentives to to do so? So if if you and I'm sure this is the, the point of the course partially is uh, you want to transmit to your students some sense of what human-centered design might mean. What does human-centered design mean to you? Well, I mean, obviously, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, to me, it means, you know, designing to maximize human agency and autonomy rather than the use of human beings. You know, it's and, and, and what is that? What does that look like? And well, it's back to a, a human augmentation, as uh, I guess Engelbart would have put it back in the day. How are we augmenting what it means to be human with our design rather than uh, thwarting or or repressing it? Yeah. And you know, I've been thinking about this for many years, too. And one of the things I throw out, and again, this example of a little box that says, is this content good for your children and grandchildren, is a more general concept of viscosity, right? If you're in a money-on-money return closed loop with no moral considerations whatsoever, more faster and faster and faster is better and better and better, more clicks, more ads to be read, et cetera. But if you intentionally slow things down, this can also apply to designs of political systems, by the way. You know, James Madison, I read a book recently on the, the origins of the Constitution. That's something I've been reading on and off on for many years. He, he knew that actually having not enough viscosity was a bad thing in a political system. I'm, out, I'm now doing some deep reading in the French Revolution, and it turned out that the political institutions of the French Revolution had no viscosity at all, at least up till 1795. And so things could switch like this from hour to hour. And perhaps human-centered design takes into consideration that humans left to their own devices can be extremely volatile. Right. And, 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 you know, again, this is this Facebook Mighty Networks comparison. It's just a little harder to get in a fight on Mighty Networks. It takes more work, right? And it 
may well be intentional. And so this idea of what is the optimal viscosity or, you know, what kind of rate limiters can you build in this? You know, another example, we both know on Twitter and Facebook, there are people who make hundreds of comments a day. Suppose you could only make five comments a day, right, on a platform. Uh, and so make you ration them, use them where you think they will, they're actually useful, important, and add value as an example of something like viscosity or a rate limiter. Right. It's putting rules of one sort or another, these little interruptions, which I know they go so against some of the original ethos of the unbridled, total freedom, wild west, you know, but if you accept it, you know, you think of it this way, when I was a theater director, I found I did better plays if I was stuck in a basement black box theater with pillars in the way of you invent around it. If you could given the perfect giant theater, you're almost non-creative. It's like once you set up some limits is when the interesting things happen. That's where, you know, viscosity is not an obstacle to your full best expression. It's a, a way it's, it's a pace, a, a pacing device. It's a, yeah, it's just it's hard to convey the importance of what's why you got to have courses. It's hard to convey the importance of that in design to people who are just trying to optimize for, you know, the cash register and the and the shininess of everything. It's interesting you mentioned theater. My wife and I go to New York pre-COVID. We go once a year and sometimes we stay as long as 3 or 4 weeks. And one of the things we love to do was to go to the off-off Broadway theater, which literally in these basements with 50 seats and uh, pillars and black spray painted ceilings uh-huh. and stuff. And people would ask us which shows we'd seen expecting us to rattle off, you know, the Broadway hits. And, you know, we usually go see one Broadway hit. I think the last one I saw was Sunday in the in the park with George, which, uh-huh. was, which was kind of a nice revival. We mostly go to shit no one's ever heard of, but it's so much better as an yeah. actual experience of theater in some real sense. So, you know, working with within constraints brings the artist out in people. I agree. So, you know, we're kind of old curmudgeons here, right? Saying, hey, we need to slow things down, make them less shiny, less hot. When you when you express ideas like this to, I guess you, your course is aimed at graduate students, so 22-year-olds, do they think you're the man from the moon? I mean, what's, what, what is their reaction to these ideas? It is interesting, you know, because here I am, this, you know, uh, uh, psychedelic hippie cyberpunk guy who used to be the one telling, you know, trying to make people less afraid of the future that was coming. You know, I was the guy who went on Larry King and told him what cyberspace was, you know, and now I'm the guy telling young people what it was like before this stuff <laughs> ever existed and tried to help in some ways denaturalize the internet so they can see it as a series of choices. But yeah, a lot of them, particularly the, the undergraduates, they're like, well, what do you have against the internet? Why don't you like the internet? And I'm like, I'm the one who wrote the book Playing the Future, arguing that the kids are okay. And they came up with the term screenagers, you know, that that the kids are all right and they're going to understand the language like natives. It's like, I, uh, if you only knew. And I, I, and I think what, what I've had to do is to help them see that I'm not trying to speak against the technology. What I'm asking is that we bring forward some of the best wisdom from the past. You know, the Tyson Truncaporta, you know, the, the, the indigenous wisdom, the permaculture wisdom, the, the wisdom of the ancients, the wisdom of the, of the 1960s, you know, and, and the commons and bring that forward into the, into the technologized future, not stop the technology, just inform it. And then they're a little bit 
better about it. But yeah, I, I've gotten now this reputation as the, what's also the title of that book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. They think I'm saying that we should throw rocks at the Google Bus. I'm not saying throw rocks. I'm saying it's a poetic image of saying, how has it come to this? That mm-hmm. Google, the two kids in a Stanford dorm room who were going to take down Yahoo with a bottom-up linked you know, algorithmic search mechanism are now extracting value from a local community and making San Francisco unlivable to the point where people are throwing rocks at their buses. How has it come to this? It doesn't mean anybody, well, some people are, but it doesn't mean anybody's evil. It just means, yo, this has gotten a little out of control here. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll you know, push back. I mean, it's not really a pushback, but it's a branch. You know, the kids are all right. Well, uh, there's an awful lot of research that said the kids now aren't all right. I know. You know, Jonathan uh, Haidt, for instance, quotes a lot of those research that starting right around 2008, 2009, guess what What, what happened then? The, uh, the iPhone and Facebook kind of reached critical mass both at about the same time. and teen suicides, teen yeah. depression, uh, particularly amongst girls. It's a, one of the very few platforms I never looked at, except occasionally look at my wife's uh, photography, is Instagram. Mm. It's apparently become the, for an, an awful lot of teenage girls, you know, they present themselves, you know, their actual persona in their own mind. There is their Instagram, whatever it is, it is on Instagram, I don't even know. And that this pr- has produced, the kids aren't all right to right. a substantial degree. No, it's a, it's a really awful technology to use as a mirror. <laughs> it's very particular. No, I mean, when I was writing The Kids Are All Right, you know, that book Playing the Future was a 1996. You know, yeah. that's, that's the, those are the kids I was talking about. Um, no, these kids, they're, they're in a, a really negative feedback loop with these technologies. Not all kids, but, you know, we know, what is it, 20, 30% increase in teen uh, suicides and cutting and all that and among Instagram users, it's it's a serious, even if I can't, you know, uh, give exact causality, there's certainly correlation there that's... Disturbing at least, right? Yeah. And the fact that, you know, talk about, you do talk about not that they're not all evil, but you know, we do have Zuck, right? He obviously doesn't care as far as we can tell. As I mean, far as we can tell, you know, or does he think it's a state? I mean, I know he thinks he's Caesar, you know, and he has the haircut. He's doing the whole thing because he's, uh, uh, was uh, what's Augustus or somebody? He thinks yeah, yeah, I had Stephen Levy on the show who wrote the book Facebook, spent five years with uh, Zuck on uh-huh. and off. And we talked about the Zuck's bizarre obsession with Augustus Caesar, including the haircut and, you know, his wife complaining when they're on their honeymoon. Uh-huh. And all they want to do is go to, you know, sites of Augustus Caesar. I mean, I'm like, yikes. Uh-huh. But uh, fortunately, I don't know. I just got a funny feeling that this move of rebranding the name of the company to Meta is a, a move of desperation. Yes. And at the same time, a, a move of hubris, mm-hmm. both at the same time. And I, fingers crossed, maybe it's not going to work. Yeah, I'm hoping not. You know, it's it's because it's not just a rebrand. It's not just like Alphabet. He's not just becoming a holding company. It's a true pivot. You know, and I understand it's the ultimate postmodern move to say I'm going to go meta on the whole thing. I'm right. framing the whole net. I'm outside that into the next in the next thing. But yeah, I mean, it's I think it's the Steve Case moment, like when Steve Case sold it or bought uh, Time Warner with AOL because. Oh. His stock was over, so he bought a real company. I think Meta is that is that moment that we reached peak Facebook a couple of years ago, and there's really only so much he can do. 
All right, let's uh, let's skip ahead. I'm gonna we'll come back to regulation again later, maybe if we have time. If not, hell, we won't talk about it. And that is what next? And you have a whole section of that. I think you call the chapter technology, decentralized web and blockchain, and metaverse. And all these things are suddenly bubbling up suddenly over the last couple of years. So-called Web three, which exactly what that means, I'm not sure, but I know it. Uh, a lot of it has to do with people who think that you can do things on a blockchain that personally, in my view, aren't really appropriate for blockchains, but that's another story for another day. But uh, And then blockchain itself and distributed finance could be called Web3. And then also in parallel, not the same, but somewhat overlapping in some places is the idea of the metaverse. It does seem like uh, there's a lot going on in terms of possible branches towards the future, more than there's been for, say, 15 years or so. Yeah. Although... You know, when I think about this Web3 and the metaverse in the future, it's kind of like big business has finally discovered Napster, (laughs) you know, (laughs) because we were doing this, you know, Tor Networks and Napster and peer-to-peer and decentralized, you know, for, for various reasons. It's like we had PGP which is pretty good privacy, which is basically just blocks of blockchain. (laughs) It's the chain, it's the blocks without the chain in a way. And then you had your keychain, you had your keychain in PGP, right? Right, right. Your public key and your private key. And and then all the blockchain is is layering up a bunch of those into a a block. So you have a, a record of them, of authenticated transactions. And the decentralized web is like Napster or Tor Networks, the way we used to do file sharing. So everybody hosts everything. And and you you get things from each other rather than from central servers so that they can't stop you. And then the other metaverse thing is just virtual reality. Again, back to VRML, you know, virtual reality markup language and Mark Pesci of the 1990. When Jaron Lanier back in night, I talked to Jaron Lanier back in 1994, and uh, right. we talked about it, and I did some calculations at the time and said, not enough bandwidth ain't going to work. But the ideas are just, you know, now there is enough bandwidth, there is enough computation. You know, the uh, Oculus Quest 2 headset is finally almost just about sufficient for the task. So these things, I I have one sitting over there and I have not yet found a convincing use case for it. Uh, That's the thing. I haven't either. And if all we're going to do with Web3 and blockchain and the metaverse is just reify the things we already have, like so far, blockchain is just hyper-capitalism, you know, hyper-speculation. It's it's like a derivatives exchange. Without any regulation, right? Right, right. Uh, yeah, and I mean, it, it's, it is interesting. I'm, you know, I will. I helped design one of the uh, early uh, coin offerings, pretty successful. Advised another one, also pretty successful. So it's, I've, I've had my uh, my wins in the in the blockchain world. But I, about t- uh, 2017, I walked away from it, saying, mm. I think I described it as. This reminds me of worse than the suits that showed up in 1998 that led to the dot-com bubble and worse to the Coke dealers that replaced the nice hippie pot dealers in the, yes. late, in the late 70s. Exactly. When it, when it came to scurviness and just no holds barred of shitty ass behavior. And while there is some good things going on, particularly around DAOs, I think really mm-hmm. clever things going on around DAOs, which I respect a whole lot. Some of the things in distributed finance make some sense, but there's so much room for scamsters and shitheads and right. promoters and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, and I hate to be one of those throw out the baby with the bathwater people, but 
I'm thinking the bathwater is so much louder than the baby right now, you know, that the net effect of all this stuff is so far negative. When I see Matt Damon on the Super Bowl hawking a crypto exchange and Larry David doing, it's like, what the, what has happened here? You know, and, and people should not be investing in this stuff. This is, it's a virtual tulip craze. Yep. Yep. Certainly a lot of it is. Uh, on the other hand, let me give you another example. You know, the Canadian government recently, last couple of days, cracked down on their trucker convoy civil disobedience by ordering all the Canadian banks, which are only seven, so it's mm. a lot more practical in Canada than in the U.S., to suspend the accounts of all the people participating in the civil disobedience. Now, as it turns out, I disagree with the civil disobedience. I do believe that requiring vaccines for cross-border truckers is not an unreasonable thing. Right. On the other hand, I also support the right for civil disobedient protest without things like destroying your business, confiscating your truck, uh, seizing your bank accounts and things of that sort. And so that does tell me that, hmm, I can see having alternative money that's not under the under the boot of the of the nation state is a good thing. Yeah, and seizing people's money, that's a really bad look. For, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure yeah, they're seizing their money yet, but they're freezing all their bank accounts, their credit cards, threatening to seize their trucks. Uh, and I said, this is, you know, this is really bad. Can you imagine if Donald Trump had ordered the American banks to freeze all the accounts of all the Black Lives Matter protesters? Yeah. Or if Biden did it to uh, uh, people who didn't get vaccinated, it would be even worse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so this is you know, you know, this is one of the arguments, I will say the legitimate arguments of blockchain folks is governments are becoming more and more repressive around the world. There's a slide towards kleptocratic authoritarianism around the world. And even if we don't love some of the uses of blockchain, the, uh, you know, we have to use some of it in self-defense against, uh, you know, the over-regulatory nation state. If they're indeed more robustly defensible. You know, I, I sometimes question, you know, when, when, not to get nerdy, but you know, when e they forked Ethernet, right? There was a big kind of Ethernet robbery and they forked Ethernet because there are few enough people with enough Ethernet to decide, let's, <laughs> let's move this over here. So, I think it would almost be harder to do a reset like that on the dollar than it was on the supposed uh, cryptocurrency. So it's tricky. Yeah, there's something to that. You know what was interesting to me is there the the efforts to use like blockchain and decentralized tech to like enable democracy and per, you know there's this thing that they did in New York called unfinished. This uh, it was the guy the former owner of the L.A. Dodgers started this, this organization to build a blockchain that will create a uh, global multiracial democracy through the blockchain. And I'm like, okay. How? <laughs> what do you need? Uh, and so there's a whole they have this conference with a whole bunch of us come in and we're all like, okay, what you got? <laughs> and what was the answer? They didn't say they want to build a social network, basically, uh, a decentralized okay. social network, but you, you know, I think you get rewarded for your attention with tokens and you know, that sort of there's a bunch of those sort of like minds.com and a lot of them that that it's just really hard to um to engender the best conversation if you're getting paid 
to converse. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a member of Minds, and mm-hmm. the quality is low. Right. It's an interesting concept, but it is not executed in a way that, to your point earlier, that makes us better humans. And, uh, you know, that was going to be one of my points. I, I do follow not just the blockchain-based distributed web, but some of the other ones, things like the Beaker browser that was essentially implements a peer-to-peer network between all the browsers mm. and, you know, moves it, as you said, moves the data around between them, et cetera. You know, the DAT project, which is a kind of related thing that allows you to build distributed online databases that are hosted everywhere, kind of like the old toward things, what mm-hmm. have you. And then another one at a, one level up of sophistication is the Fediverse, the Mastodon network right. of essentially Twitter clones. It's kind of a, a somewhat better in some ways Twitter, but here's the point. In some ways it's worse. And that is that distributed technology makes certain kinds of functionality a lot harder, right? Like discovery. Yeah. You know, if we mm-hmm. have a, you know, a multiverse of Twitter servers, how do I find Douglas Rushkoff? Yeah, you can have a distributed search that goes searches them all and it comes back, you know, in a couple of minutes, maybe if you're lucky. But there's a lot of functionality that is much easier, more easily implemented in terms of a centralized server. And right. so whenever I see these business plans, I see a lot of them because people know I'm interested in this stuff. For, you know, distributed X, I say, oh. You can't do this feature very well. You will lose because it's actually better to do, you know, this on a centralized or partially centralized service. So it's viscosity, but not the right kind of viscosity. Exactly. It's not, it's architectural viscosity, but unnecessary uh, architectural viscosity. Do you really want to, you know, let's say the limit case, do I really want everybody to have a full copy of everything, everybody they ever interacted with said on Facebook, on their phone? I don't think so. (laughs) Thank you, no. Thank you, no. But the the difficulty of discovery is something, oh, this makes me sound old also, but it's something I miss. I mean, I miss the way that I found out about Charles Bukowski, the short story guy, was because a cool kid in high school told me about William Burroughs, who wasn't in any local library. I made it down to St. Mark's Books and asked the guy, William Burroughs, and he's like, that counter over there. And there was this bookcase, like behind the thing, around the bend of Burroughs. But then there were these other people, like Allen Ginsberg, and then these weird books by this guy Bukowski. So I come back from New York City in 11th grade with William Burroughs' Naked Lunch and Charles Bukowski short stories. And then my friend's like, what's that? And so how does that happen without like bleaker bobs? And 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 there was a... a, a it was almost like a magical initiation that it required a certain amount of effort and finding and discovery that when everything is one Google search away or thrown at you because you jump into a Facebook group and it's all just – you're overwhelmed with the stuff, uh, uh, there's a little bit of that journey that's lost. Yeah. It's funny you should mention this. It's a very interesting overlap. Uh, very late in history, but me and one of my college buddies about 1972 became – obsessed with the beats and we went back and read gary snyder and farrell and getty and uh, kerouac and neil Cass- about neil cassidy and somehow along that along those lines i also stumbled across uh, burroughs and bukowski and uh, there was no google in those days somehow uh, one of us heard i think my buddy had heard about on the road and even though by this point it was old news 1972 we both read it and said 
this is really interesting. What else <laughs> we can find out like this? And yeah. you know, I, I memorized Howl at one point, right? Mostly to annoy <laughs> my father, right? Uh, <laughs> and uh, But yeah, it was a cult thing, right? I guess you can still have cult things by being ultra, 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 ultra specialized. Right. Black but, pill and do the research or whatever. And you get a community. Yeah, you get a community and you maybe it turns into QAnon, right? I know. But you know, but the thing that's positive about that is that they do have each other in a way that most people, certainly online, don't. You know, they don't have a group of people who are going to support you. You know, their their QAnon is a yes and improvisation, you know, where anything you add, yes, and they're doing this, and they're doing – and it's like to be accepted like that is is something that, you know – those of us struggling on the uh, 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 anarchic fringe of the left, my God, it's so hard to feel included. It's it's anything I say can 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 trigger. It's like it, it, it's really the internet is a hard place. You know, medium is a hard place to write for now. It's like as everything becomes more like a social network, I feel less and less like a, a contemplative writer and more like a hot take delivery dude. Yeah, that's what they all want to try to force us into. Right. Faster. Write more. You know, that's always what – nothing against medium. God bless. They've given me money and attention and wonderful stuff. But the call I always get is, we'd like you to write shorter, more frequent pieces. <laughs> it's always to that. <laughs> Until it's going to be a tweeted hour, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what they want, That's uh, which is quite unfortunate, right? Yeah. But it's the way. Yeah, it's funny. I I recently put out something on Twitter, which I think it makes a similar point, which is I said, you know, maybe the thing that unifies uh, uh, QAnon, the anti vaxxers, the mimetic trans community, and some of these other communities of people basically having a, you know, a group that they can hug on to is that it's the equivalent of a prison gang in a grabarian prison of structural violence. Mm. I think there's a lot to that. You know, uh, woke, yeah. wokeism fits in the same category. They they, uh, they hug on to each other and they have an identity against the world in, in the same way a prison gang does. And we're all stuck in this damn barbarian prison of structural violence. And, yep. and this is a reasonable adaptation. It is, and, you know, and, and it trickles down into the real world as well then. You know, I was watching my, and maybe it was like this for, for girls, you know, since whenever, but, you know, watching my daughter negotiate middle school and the middle school cafeteria. And the, when she would come home and describe, oh, I can't sit at this table because they're like that. And that table says I can, but they're going to do this. And this, that you, I imagine the kids walking with their tray, looking at the room, at these tribes, at these tables, and what it means to sit down with any one of them is the and you've got to find one or you're not safe. It right. is like the prison yard. Are you yeah. gonna go with the Crips, the Bloods, the Aryan Nation, the the this? And I do feel that that, you know, right now the real world experience of young people in particular is more characterized by the, the, the architectures of the networks that they're on rather than the other way around. Yep. Yep. And, and some of it's good, you know, people can find each other, mm-hmm. uh, especially people who are oddballs don't fit in. Don't they They don't have a lunch table, right. But yep. they can, they can find 10 people they're compatible with on the internet on the other hand, you end up in echo chambers that just reinforce nuttiness. You know, you can understand why people are queuing nuts, but 
frankly, they're nuts, right? Right. But people underestimate how, I'm, I don't know if it was for you too. I was not a popular kid growing up. I had weird ideas and all. I find the well when I'm 19 years old, find the well, and I get to have a conversation in a topic with John Barlow himself, with Nick Herbert, with with Stuart Brand, with how they talk to you. They talk to me, you know, and 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 uh, affirmed my ideas about society and and intelligence and it's so powerful. It's so, and, and that potential is still there to, to affirm the best in, in one another. You know, I, I, I still can taste it. So it's still, it's not a lost cause. Yeah. And I still get lots of value out of uh, particularly private groups on Facebook even, right? right. Though you wonder, they'll figure out how to monetize those yeah. too before long. Yeah, but they're private. And the and the beauty of a private group is not that they're exclusionary of other people. It's that once you're in a private group or once you're broadcasting for a, a posse, you no longer are trying to get more clicks and you can't help it. Even when I'm writing on Medium now, I'm incentivized to get more claps, more likes, more followers, more money, more this. And whenever you're in public in generic internet land, you're trying to reach everybody with everything all the time. And to put a boundary around that and say, no, no, I'm going to have a deep conversation with just 30 people and that's okay. It didn't go viral. That's okay. We're we're getting enriched. Uh, it's to 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 uh, somehow help create spaces and a value system that engenders that that sensibility is going to be so important in order to to uh, uh, promote good thought moving forward. Like the little, what do you call them? The little bees, right? The little bees. You could be in a little bee that just knows the other people in your little bee. Proto bees, yeah. Right, and that's fine. That's fine. You're in a happy bee. You're getting laid. You're eating good food. You're having good songs. You can get some books from another bee or some incense from that bee and some pot from this bee. That's fine. But your bee is your bee. Your little Dunbar group. 150 people, right? That's all you really need. That's the people you really need. And and it's hard as someone who's gotten to write books for tens of thousands of people to say, oh, no, 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 you don't need that. Just find your 150 people. But in reality, that's where I'm going back to now. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm receding as best I can. You know, I, I'm feeling like I'm in uh, the mode of maybe written my last book and going to withdraw from the public eye, if nothing else, just to model a different <laughs> approach to life. Welcome to Game B, right? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, I think we're uh, up on our time. I know you have a obligation here uh, at the hour. I would say, uh, as always, there were a lot of things on my uh, call list we didn't get to, but the things we did get to, we really got we to. We definitely so. did. And, and we're still alive and well. So hopefully we could uh, do more of this. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Anytime you want to come on the Jim Rutt Show, you are welcome. Excellent. All right. And you on Team Human. Indeed. Uh, very good, Douglas. Thank you for a, a great conversation about the past, the present, and the future of the <laughs> online world. <laughs> Thank you and namaste. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.